Smarties, today Dr. Sharon Celine joins us on the podcast. Sharon is the author of What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew, Working Together to Empower Kids for Success in School and in Life. You are about to hear our conversation of how closely aligned we are with Dr. Celine's work. We discuss her overall goal of improving the connection between parents and their kids with ADHD through improving the conversation and her way of going about that. And her way of going about that is through the five C's of parenting, which she has developed. The five C's of parenting are self-control, compassion, collaboration, consistency, and celebration. We also dive into a conversation about medication and how complicated that issue is for so many of the families that we work with. We also are really excited that we got to continue the conversation with her on Patreon. If you are not a member of our Patreon community, Patreon is where for $5 a month, you can support the work that Steph and I are doing here on the podcast. And in exchange, we gift you with all the extended conversations from all the amazing professionals that we've had on the podcast, in addition to exclusive content that we only release on Patreon. In order to hear this extended conversation with Dr. Celine and all the other extended conversations and exclusive content that we release only there, go to www.patreon.com. Patreon.com slash Learn Smarter Podcast. In the conversation with Dr. Celine today, we continue with some anecdotal questions that I have about kids with ADHD, and we have a broader conversation about what parenting vastly, drastically different kids is functionally like. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer you have to learn smarter the educational therapy podcast hi smarties welcome to episode 169 of learn smarter the educational therapy podcast i'm stephanie pitts and i'm rachel cap and today we're really excited to have author dr sharon celine on with us hi sharon hi great to be here we're so happy to have you We're very excited to introduce you to our audience if they don't already know you. But as we're doing that, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about who you are and what you do and who you do it for. Thank you. I'm a clinical psychologist based in Northampton, Massachusetts, author of What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew and the ADHD Solution Card Deck and international speaker. I will come to you if you would like to learn more about parenting kids who are diverse learners, teaching kids who are diverse learners, and clinically as clinicians working with diverse learners and their families. Which is all the things. (laughs) Perfect. So now our audience is like, okay, we understand why Rachel and Steph wanted her on the podcast. 100%. (laughs) So we really wanted to talk to you today mostly about, well, all the things, honestly, but particularly what your ADHD child wishes you knew, Mm -hmm. which is your book. So we're curious, what sort of brought this book about? What led you to like, I need to write this? Well, I was seeing a lot of clients who had ADHD and I had been doing some presentations with parents and educators on the topic of uh, diverse learners. And One of the things that I kept noticing is what kids were telling me was one set of experiences and information, and what parents were telling me was something very different. 
And so I wanted to improve the connection between parents and children by improving the conversation. So I decided that I wanted to write this book. And what I wanted to do was interview a bunch of kids uh, with ADHD and some parents and talk about what their experience is. And that led me to put together my five C's approach. Perfect. And there she goes right into it. Right into the next question. (laughs) So please tell us all about the five C's. So the five C's is a strength-based approach that uses attentive awareness. So we're mindful in our parenting approach. And we're also paying attention to what's working more than what's not working because we want to grow those skills. We obviously want to shore up the challenges, but what happens for a lot of these kids is that they hear comments all the time about how they're not measuring up, what they're not doing Mm -hmm. right, quote unquote. And so we want to try to help build their self-esteem by noticing what is going well for them. So the five C's is a parenting approach, and it's actually good for parents of kids who are diverse learners and kids who are more traditional learners. My husband says it's like parenting on steroids when you parent neurodiverse learners. So the first C is self-control. We adults are going to manage ourselves because what kids told me is it's very disruptive to them when their parents are dysregulated and losing it. There's no way that the kids can hold on to themselves in the face of that. And they would prefer to hold on to themselves. I think all things being equal, they would rather not lose their temper and scream and yell. And it's not comfortable being out of control. So we want the parents to put the oxygen mask on their face first and then on their kids. And that way, when you are regulated, you're able to engage your best thinking brain and then you can assist your child in a way that works for them. Now, of course, none of us are perfect. We're not going to do this all the time. I certainly haven't done it all the time, but we're going to try to do it more times than not. And the second C is compassion. And that's about meeting kids where they are, not where you expect them to be. These are kids who expect to hear negativity about themselves. And what they want is to feel attuned to adults. They want to know who's their support, who's their ally. And it's also about self-compassion, realizing that as an adult who works or lives with a child who's uh, neurodiverse, you're going to get tested and you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And we want to teach them that too. So that second C, compassion, really is about fostering a growth mindset. And the third C is collaboration. And what kids told me over and over again is what they really can't stand is that adults make plans and decisions about what they should be doing without consulting them, without investigating, does this make sense to your brain? You know, what might work for you? I'm suggesting, but we might need to tweak it. And this collaboration is a very important piece of the whole approach, because if you're not reaching out and listening to what kids are saying with their words, with their bodies, then you're not going to be able to meet them where they are or have self-control. So we want to work with kids. We want their participation in whatever plans we create, and we want to use meaningful incentives. The fourth C is consistency, and this is not about perfection because we can't do that. 
It's about doing the best you can most of the time. So it's about steadiness. And it's also for the kids about steady efforting. Efforting is when you are trying, when you succeed and then you keep going. When you try, you don't succeed. You have to regroup. You try again. So it's very important for diverse learners to hear from adults that they are being seen in their efforting and they're encouraging their efforting. And the last C is celebration. And this is not about baking cake because your son cleared the table. Um, (laughs) This is actually about validating, encouraging, noticing the efforts that your kids are making. And so the process as much as the final product, what they achieve. And this is very important because the negativity bias is very strong in human brains. And in addition, three positives to every negative, according to Dr. Barbara Fredrickson and her colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania. And so three positives to every negative. Now, you both work with kids. So I'm going to ask you, what do you think the ratio is for the average diverse learner? Because it's not three positives for every negative. I don't know a ratio, but I know that my kids are not hearing the positives. Parents and kids tell me anywhere from one positive to 10 negatives a day, and sometimes one positive to 30 or 40 negatives a day. Because teenagers basically ask me, well, what I say to myself or what other people say to me. And so that intense negativity really affects their ability to take risks to see themselves as just as normal as the next person, because all of our brains are wired uniquely. So much to unpack there. Yeah. Just on a side note, I love it when we have people like you come on the podcast and just frankly lecture at us for a couple minutes. It puts me back into my college classroom days and I love it. Yeah. But there's so much to unpack in that and so aligned with what we see in the work that we do and the way that we are intimately involved as educational therapists in the lives and the relationships that kids have with their parents. And that's what I think I love so much about this is that it's encouraging, as you said, that improved relationship, because we always say the beautiful byproduct of good intervention from our practices is that family and home life improves. So I kind of would love to take this step-by-step stuff, if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that you've started with the self-control piece. So much of what parents are looking for, and I'm sure you see this, is like external, fix my kid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so starting with the self-control coming from the parent and truly self-acceptance of, you know, my kid is like this and wasn't what I expected and I'm going to embrace my child where they are, is so critical in the trajectory of the lives of our kids. I see it. I see it when I have parents who have radical acceptance of their learners versus those who are fighting against it. So what would you add to my thinking along those lines? Well, first, I want to say I'm sorry if you felt lectured, but thank you so much for letting me explain. She loves being lectured. (laughs) It makes me feel like a student again. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, that's fantastic. One of the hardest things for parents to accept is that their children are not who they thought they would be. Yeah. You know, and I think that there is a very real grieving process that needs to occur in order for you as a parent to say, you know what, this is who I got. 
they're my teacher. I'm going to learn from them. They're going to learn some things from me, but I'm also going to learn from them. We're on a journey together and it's a discovery journey. And I think that that's hard for a lot of parents because we have children where we think like, I'm the parent, I'm going to teach you. And then when our kids don't really learn the way we think they should or where they don't actually comply with us in the way that we think they should, it's very unsettling and destabilizing to say the least. And so what we need to do is really take a hard look at what are our expectations that we're bringing to the table for these kids and what are the kids bringing to the table about who they are. And I struggled a lot with this with my daughter. I have two children. They're adults now, you know, millennials or Generation Z. I think one is one, one is the other. And my daughter, she needed more time and space after school. And I really was like, no, you know, like I paid for the dance lesson. You're going to go to the dance lesson. And I went to work and my husband was supposed to take her. And he was like, yeah, she didn't really want to go. So I didn't take her. And I was like, oh, <laughs> right. That was really a challenge for me. And I can't say that I did a great job meeting it, but I do feel like in the past couple of years that I've tried really hard to own up to why I did that. I mean, I would talk about it at the time and my regret about how I handled it. And that's the other thing. Like, you're not going to be perfect as a parent. You're going to mess up. And, you know, I always would say like, here's your dollar for the therapy jar. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, you are going to make mistakes and that's fine. It's how you repair afterwards. And that's what we want to teach our kids, which is why it's important to practice that second C, compassion. We have to remember what it's like for them to wake up every day, get dressed, go to school, which is the hardest area of functioning for these kids, Mm -hmm. navigate school, make it through the day academically, socially, emotionally, come home, and then, oh, we have more stuff to do. I have homework. I have chores. All I really want to do is like lie on the floor and cuddle with the dog or play my video games because my mind is done. I'm done. So we have to work with that. You know, one of my friends who runs a huge ADHD organization in England, her son, when he was a teen, said, I don't want to have any homework. I don't want to do homework after school. I'm burnt. I want to wake up early in the morning, take my medication, work for two hours, and then go to school. And she, of course, her eyebrows went up and she's like, no, I don't think that's going to work. He's like, I want you to let me try. And kudos to her because she let him try. And guess what? It worked. Yeah, I was going to say it probably worked. That's right. And he came home from school. He's like, I'm free. I got to set the table and take up trash. That's it. I was thinking about the compassion piece, especially if you are the parent that doesn't identify with the child. That's exactly right. And for me, that was the case with my daughter. Like both my husband and my daughter, you know, are really happy to have lots of unstructured time to do whatever. And I'm like, where are we going? What are we doing? (laughs) And so, so it was really challenging for me because the thing that annoyed me about my husband annoyed me about my daughter, right? I would say to him like, well, let's go out on Saturday. Why don't you pick the movie and the dinner? And he'd come back. He's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, pick a movie and a dinner. I want to not decide. And so it's really important to kind of own this stuff. 
I think that, you know, when you're parenting a diverse learner, sometimes it's hard to see characteristics, particularly if they're very smart. You know, that's why twice exceptional kids have such a difficult time because they're so bright that through the early years in elementary school, you know, unless it's very clear that they have a language-based learning disability or they have a lot of trouble, you know, physically writing or reversing numbers, you know, any of those, you know, language, math, glaring discrepancies, then you know, their intelligence is going to compensate for their challenges. We see this with kids who have ADHD and are twice exceptional all the time. Even kids who have, you know, more subtle language-based learning disabilities, we see that their intelligence compensates for a long time until it doesn't. And then it's like, what's the matter with you? You're so smart. Which is so gut-wrenching for the kid. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you've been able to figure it out so far. Why can't you just keep going? And it just doesn't work. Because if they could, they would. And their whole self-esteem and self-concept is wrapped up in the fact that I'm smart. And now suddenly things aren't working the way that they have been in the past. They've developed no compensatory strategies. And parents are like, what happened to you? It's very confusing. How many times do we get calls all of a sudden in blank grade It's always sixth, seventh, or eighth grade. Sometimes I get fourth. Because what happens in first, second, and third grade, as you well know, kids are learning to read. They are learning what numbers are in a facility with numbers. And they're learning the art of writing for self-expression and the physical act of writing. In fourth grade, these consolidate. And you now read to learn. You use math to solve higher order problems. And you write not just for self-expression, but for analysis. Those fundamentals that shift in fourth grade continue all the way up through middle, high school, college, et cetera. And so if you struggle making that shift, you might be able to cover it okay until you get to middle school. And then you have to add in, you know, switching classes, having a lot of different teachers. The executive functioning. Yeah. All the executive functioning skills. Then it's natural to have referrals at that time or sometimes, again, at the entrance to high school. and to college. You know, there are these key transition points and we see referrals at that time. I want to say one thing that I'm calling things disabilities and I prefer to use the word difference or discrepancy, but I'm using the word disability consciously because by using that word disability, your child can get services. Using the word difference or discrepancy does not get your child services. And I'm all about parents helping their kids get the services they need to succeed. And so while I prefer difference because I think it's kinder and no one wants to have a disability, no one, or a disorder, we do have to realize that we want kids to get the services they need. What about parents who want to pretend like it's not there or that they'll grow out of it and they don't want to get the services because they think that their kid is then getting an out or it's making it too easy for them or they're not learning grit or things like that. How do we teach those parents or help those parents with the five C's if they're not acknowledging, so to speak? Right. So the thing is, I think there are parents who don't want to see what's in front of them and they don't want to see it because A, they don't want their kids to suffer. Uh, B, they don't want their kids to have a label 
that is viewed negatively in our society. And perhaps they themselves struggled and managed somehow. And so they think that their kids will be able to do the same. And in terms of that last one, what I want to say is that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, when you were growing up, things were different. And the main thing that was different was we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the kind of technology that we have. Do you have a purple cell phone? I do. I have a purple cell phone. (laughs) Okay. I'm just going to put that out there that when Apple did that, I was very upset because I didn't get a purple one and I love purple. Okay. All right. Sorry. (laughs) Don't feel too jealous because I've had three weeks where no one's been able to leave a message on my voicemail at work because of changing my phone. Oh, oh. But at least it looks pretty. It looks really pretty. It takes really good pictures. And now we, I think we got the voicemail problem fixed. Good. Sorry to sidetrack. I got excited about the purple. <laughs> it is awesome. I was like, if there's purple, I'm getting it. I feel the same way. <laughs> I know, right? Anyway, so what I was saying is that a lot of parents were like, well, I struggled and I'm okay. So why can't you do that? And I think what they're not sort of looking at is that our society has evolved since you parent were in school. And we understand much more about how the brain works and about some of these learning differences that kids have that are actually detrimental, both to their self-esteem and their social-emotional learning. Because when you feel bad about yourself because you don't understand material or you can't metabolize it, hold on to it, call it up when you need it, if you can't process it at the speed in which you see other people processing it, you are labeling yourself in a negative way. And what we see in kids is they act out. They're angry, they're frustrated, they're impulsive. You know, we see all kinds of mental health things that go along with that, anxiety, depression, et cetera. So obviously what we wanna do is get information about our kids' brains and how they work. That's the best thing, you know, have your school do an evaluation. Pay for a private evaluation if you can afford it. But let's find out what's going on. Because if kids are struggling, if they're suffering, we want to intervene right away. And that's really the barometer that I use. How much is your child suffering? How much are things out of whack at home? Because they're all related. I like that question. Me too. Because how much is your child suffering? How much are you suffering? How much is the family structure suffering? Yes, exactly. All of it. Many families have more than one child. And so the dynamic between those children will be affected by someone who has a learning issue that's not being addressed, by someone who has a social you know, communication issue that's not being addressed, by someone that has an attention issue or an anxiety issue. You know, all of these things affect everybody. You don't grow up in a Petri dish, right? It's so true. Going back to sort of Steph's original question, which was, you know, the parents who are, I handled it, I turned out fine. And a lot of the times the parents that we're dealing with Steph are incredibly successful in their chosen field. Mm -hmm. It's almost like when they're coming into ed therapy, they're so reluctant to even be offering this intervention. Yes. So this is almost the perfect transition into the conversation about collaboration, because I think that's one of the roles that we can play as educational therapists that maybe is less explicit in the dynamic, because oftentimes parents are coming to us with the fix my kid attitude here. 
they're your problem now kind of thing. And one of the things I know I for sure talked to parents about during the discovery call with the first time we're chatting is this is collaborative and how coachable are you? Are you coachable (laughs) in this whole process? Wow. Because it's easier for me and my team to create some shifts if the parents can be responsive. So I'll often test them like on a discovery call and be like, so is it okay if I give you some feedback? And I'll say something that's totally the opposite of whatever they've just said. And usually, let's be honest, because my practice specializes in ADHD and executive functioning challenges. Mm -hmm. And so almost every parent is calling to say that their kid is lazy, which we all know is a huge trigger word for all of us. Ouch. Ouch. I hate that word. Yep. We all hate that word. And so, but I understand why parents say it. I understand what it looks like, but it's so damaging. It's so damaging because these kids are working twice as hard and producing half as much sometimes and getting no praise for working twice as hard. So when I'm able to like offer that, can I offer an alternative opinion or can I push back on that for a second? It shows me how collaborative parents are, but they have to be willing to collaborate. And I loved what you said about the adults making decisions for these kids because, you know, one of the steps of our process is that they need to take control of their time. Mm -hmm. They need to have control of their time in order to learn how to feel time Mm -hmm. and to screw up and make mistakes and recover and Mm -hmm. not have mom and dad be the manager of their day anymore, especially because it's not healthy in an older dynamic. They don't want that. Parents don't want to be doing it anymore, except I secretly think some parents don't want to give up that control. Well, because they don't know what their role is going to be. So I really, I love what you're saying, Rachel. And one of the things that's hard for parents to understand, particularly if they were raised by my way or the highway parents. So we have, you know, kind of different types of parents. We have my way or the highway. We have parents who over negotiate with their kids. Uh, We have parents who are over explainers. They kind of fall into that category. We have parents who give in to their kids and let their kids have too much authority in the family. And so what we have to work with is teaching parents and for parents who are listening, teaching yourselves, what does compromise mean? What does compromise mean in your family? Yeah. What does compromise look like for you? And how are we going to teach compromise to your child? Because if your child doesn't understand that it's a give and take world, you know, then they grow up to be takers or the over givers. And particularly for raising females, that overgiving is a huge pattern that we see. <laughs> Can you say that again? <laughs> the giving and the taking statement. So we don't want to raise kids who are takers. And sometimes in our culture, those can be typically male, but not exclusively, of course. And we don't want to raise givers who overgive, which can typically be female, but not exclusively. So what happens is that we have to teach kids where to give and where to let go. And that means we ourselves as parents have to figure out where to hold on and where to let go. And there is no magic formula for that. Mm -hmm. It's the trial and error process. And so when people call you and say, fix my kid, you know, they may or may not say fix my kid. What they often say is my child has all of these issues. We want you to make it better. And the issue is really 
there's a dynamic in this family. So I'm working with a family right now. This is a middle schooler and I'm going to change the gender and stuff to protect the privacy of this person. But this is a boy who has anxiety, who has ADHD, who has a language-based learning disability. And is, I would say when he was younger, he was definitely on the high-functioning autism spectrum. I think that's still there in terms of the rigidity and some of the communication, but he's learned a great deal over the therapy. And we've been working together maybe for four or five years, but he's really becoming an adolescent and he has a phobia of wasps and it's COVID. And so I've offered to my clients to meet in my yard, which is a huge thing for me because we haven't been able to meet in person and they're at the end of their ropes. A lot of these kids, they just can't do it anymore and the parents either. So they come to my yard and this happened last summer and he would get completely freaked out about bugs flying around him. Mm. So this year it started again and I referred him to an anxiety specialist just for an assessment because I wanted a second opinion. Yeah. And my colleague called me. He's like, yeah, he has misophonia. I'm like, are you kidding? And for those of you who don't know what misophonia is, it's a sensory processing issue that has to do with sound. It's an extreme sensitivity to sound. He doesn't like people chewing. Doesn't like people chewing, particularly one parent and very sensitive to volume. And there's fear of the bee sting, but there's the sound that's very upsetting. So once he got this diagnosis, he kind of felt empowered to now say to his parents, like, stop yelling at me. You're making it worse. Or can you not do the dishes before I go to school? And how the parents interpreted that was as another form of control. You're trying to control everything in the house. And what the child is trying to do is say, like, "Ah, I can't take all the sound. And so we're really at a crossroads here. Some interventions like wear earplugs or have functional noise-canceling headphones. But there's also an issue around adaptability. Well, how can we teach you? And this is a very loud family. I think I would have trouble, and I'm a loud person. So it's really interesting to kind of work with the parents in this situation, like, when are you loud? How are you loud? Because the kid actually recorded a time when the parents were yelling. They were having a discussion and that we talked about in our individual work, took it back, And it ended up in this yelling and he recorded it and sent it to me. And he said, this is what I'm dealing with. I mean, it's so complicated. Wow. Almost good for him for recording it. I know. Right. And, you know, I can't tell the parents that because that really not go very well, but he's getting a voice and I want to honor his voice. And I want to honor that he's not the only person in this, you know, five-person family. Yeah. It's just so complicated to teach parents how to negotiate and to teach kids how to negotiate because he wants the things that are bothering him, like a lot of kids who are on the spectrum, to stop immediately. Yeah. And he wants to have that control and he can't. Yeah. The discomfort is so overwhelming. Everything else can't be dealt with. Well, it really speaks to... The complexity of this family dynamic is clearly complex. There's a lot of diagnoses going on within. Mm -hmm. But even in a family with neurotypical kids, how complicated teaching how to negotiate and incremental sometimes our work can feel. Absolutely. Like sometimes 
it feels so slow to all of us. And then we have to sort of hold the space just in the same way that we sometimes need to hold space for parents and remind them, okay, but do you remember when we first met two years ago, what we were talking about? We're not talking about that stuff anymore. We have to also do that for ourselves too sometimes. Ourselves and our team, for sure. I have that conversation a lot. Right. We have to hold the long view because they're in the thick of it. And that's important. And I think that what we want to remember is to zoom out. And your kids, parents, want to get along with you as much as you want to get along with them. They may have all of this bravado and facade, like, I don't need you and I don't care. But they do. They do. Yeah, 100%. So that's where you want to start is like, we all want our family to be a better experience. Kids with different things going on so often get blamed. Blamed by the parents, blamed by the siblings, blamed by themselves, that they are the root cause of all the problems in the family dynamic. That's right. And that's such a heavy burden to bear when you're a little person. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to let that sort of sit for a second. Can you talk a little bit more about the celebration piece? Mm -hmm. You know, with the parents who maybe have a my way or the highway attitude, as you say, have a struggle with external rewards because they want it to be an internal. They want internal motivation from their kids, which we know that kids with ADHD struggle with that. And maybe reward isn't the right word. And so you correct me, but they don't want to incentivize for things they should be doing. Mm -hmm. So how do you sort of navigate that? That's a really good question, Rachel. So here's the thing. There are two types of motivation, extrinsic and intrinsic right? Extrinsic is what something, a demand that's made outside of you. Like you need to bring your permission form in by Monday to take the, you know, field trip. Yeah. field trip on Friday. Okay. But then there's intrinsic rewards. I myself, Sharon, I want to run the 10 minute mile, which I don't, but you know, <laughs> or I want to reach a goal so I could do a 5k or I want to reach the next level on my game. That's intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation coalesces in the brain in the late teens and early 20s, fully coalesces. And because brains with ADHD or ADHD brains mature more slowly, up to three years more slowly, we're talking about 20 and beyond Mm -hmm. with fully functional internal motivation. And if your child is uh, smoking a lot of marijuana or has a substance abuse problem, it's going to be later than that. Oh, So what we want to do is help people understand that the reward, you know, it's not a bribe. A bribe is here's the reward. Now do the act. It's you do the act and then you earn something. So let's take the three of us, for example. After dinner, you have a sink full of dishes and you want to watch your show. What do you do first? Well, are you asking me or my husband? Because we have different attitudes about that, Sharon. I'm open to all. (laughs) Mine is I do the dishes and then I watch the show. And that would be mine too. Mine too. Why? Because then I can have the reward of it's done. And instead of, oh, now I have to go do something I don't want. What's going to motivate me to do it? Because I already did the fun thing. So, oh, I'll just put it off. I won't do it because I don't want to now. Exactly. That is what we want to teach kids. And we're going to do that. We're going to roll that back all the way to kindergarten Mm -hmm. by having the have to before the want to. So I'm going to come home from kindergarten. 
I'm going to put my backpack and my lunchbox on the counter the way I'm supposed to. And then I'm going to have my snack and then I can go play. But if my backpack and my lunchbox aren't on the counter, I can't go play. Okay, that's a super simplistic example. But you go from there. You know, a lot of times kids who are in elementary school, they want to come home, have nothing to do with school until they've played and had fun. And then they really don't want to have nothing, anything to do with school. They want to have nothing to do. So, you know, I've worked with a lot of kids who are diverse learners. And for those who are particularly who have attention issues, the issue is you got to come home, have a quick snack, do your work while your medication is still in your brain. Then you can have your play period. That can be frustrating, but that's the way it has to go. Otherwise, when they sit down to do their homework at five o'clock, they're in the witching hour and nothing gets done. And then it's just miserable for everybody. Right. So we have to be able to like tweak things. Like I was working with someone and her middle school son, he'd run around the house and the daughter is neurotypical. And so it would be time to get in the car in the morning. The daughter would be in the car dressed with everything. And the son would be running around like, where are my socks? Where are my shoes? Okay. And so the mom said, no problem with my suggestion. Let's just keep a pair of socks in the car. <laughs> the next week she came back and said, a miracle has occurred. I said, what's that? She said, the socks are on all the time now. Isn't that funny? <laughs> just sometimes a simple <laughs> suggestion. <laughs> do- I love that though. That's such a good story. We don't have to worry about you not having your socks because I'm keeping a pair in the car and boom, the socks were on every day. It's so, you know, confusing. And just finding that one little tweak. That's with everything, right? Finding the one little tweak that then can like make everything smoother for everybody. And I want to go back to you talking about when medication is still in the brain. Medication is a big issue. Thank you. Issue. Call it what it is. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So you talk a little bit about it in saying that medication can help, but it doesn't teach the skills, right? This is something that I encounter with parents not wanting to give medication because they think that the medication will make it so they won't learn the skills. Let me add another perspective into it. I had a call yesterday with the parent and it's my standard practice. We deal with ADHD and in my practice, where are you guys at with medication? I'm just asking. I'm not offering an opinion. I'm trying to get to know the family. She flat out goes, if you guys are a group that's going to push medicine, we're not going to be a good fit. So there's that parent who's just adamant that it's not going to happen. Then there's the parent who we did the medication and you know what? The stuff is still happening. Everything is still like they're shocked. And then there's the parent who I don't want to give them medicine because I want them to learn. So there's like all three, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can add a few more. There's the parent who says, we've tried medication. It didn't work. And it doesn't work. There's the parent who says, my kid doesn't feel like themselves on the medication. So we stopped. There's a parent who says the side effects are significant. There's a, a whole lot of different scenarios. And of course, as a parent, you're invested and you want to focus on the well-being of your child. I get that. I appreciate that. Here's my question. How much is your child suffering? And how much are you as a family suffering? Because people who have ADHD kids do not make enough dopamine or norepinephrine in their brains, those neurotransmitters. 
give them plenty of fish oil that can help improve the connectivity in the brain, but it's not going to target those two neurotransmitters in the way that medication does. And for a lot of kids, they get the medication and they don't feel like themselves. That's right, because themselves was not their most effective self. And so for many families, it's like, I'm going to give you your medication for school because you need to be able to be productive in a particular way. But on the weekends, no. And then some families say, it's very difficult to deal with you on the weekends. Emotional dysregulation is very common and so difficult. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. You know, I kind of think of it like wearing glasses. It's like glasses for your brain. Would you not wear your glasses? because you were trying to build up the function of your eyes? No. You would wear your glasses. If you wanted to do eye strengthening exercises, you would. But you can't actually like teach your eyes to be better. I hope I'm not offending anybody. No. You can't wish it. It just doesn't work that way. No, but when kids take medication, and there are many kids who cannot, in which case you're still going to do the same thing, they can absorb and hold on to the executive functioning skills you're teaching them more readily. Kids who don't have medication will still learn those skills. It's just a longer timeline and often a rougher road. But we all make it into adulthood. Our brains all mature, whether it's by 25 for neurotypical brains or 28 for ADHD brains. Our development actually coalesces in the mid to late 20s. And you're still going to have executive functioning skill challenges if you have ADHD or if you're dyslexic or if you're on the spectrum or if you're twice exceptional, because that's what goes along with each of those profiles. And I think it's important to help your kids accept the brain they have for you to accept the brain they have and to decide while your kids are still kids and they're not adults, you know, what kind of interventions do you want to try? Most families of kids in elementary school want to try non-medication interventions first, and then they will, over time, if it's not working, they'll try something else. And middle and high school, it's different. The parents come in, they're like, okay, (laughs) we want to do anything we can to make it different. And the kids themselves may want that. So, you know, it's really a spectrum. It's so complicated, but these are my favorite types of families to work with because you can really see over the long term how much these kids have evolved and their brains yes they're different but they are the kids say the darndest things let's just say it they're wonderfully creative they're funny they're sensitive they're outside the box thinkers sometimes they are fearless they are risk takers they see the world with, you know, a completely, you know, different lens than you may see it. And these are all fantastic. And taking medication isn't going to change any of those things. You know, in fact, it will hopefully make them be able to access those parts of themselves and apply them more effectively. But medication is not for every child. And that you as a family get to make that decision. And I want to be clear that I respect that decision. Regardless The research has found that the best treatment is medication with family education or family therapy or family executive functioning skill coaching. Yeah. If you don't want to do the medication piece, you'll still make a lot of progress. It's just going to be slower and more arduous. 
It's what I tell families too. And I like when I totally am aligned with you that it is a medical decision and I'm not a medical professional, right? Right. What I ask for in terms of like openness and compatibility and collaboration with families is openness around the conversation. Even if we come back to it's a no, because for some kids it is a no, because it just speaks to sort of the spirit of the partnership, I would say. Uh, Yeah. And some kids really cannot take the medication. They have tons of side effects. They develop tick disorders, um, maybe on stimulants, maybe they'll try a non-stimulant. It's it's a very frustrating process because there's no litmus test. Oh, okay. I'm going to, you know, put my saliva on this piece of paper and this is the medication that's going to work for me. That's what's really scary. I think for a lot of parents, The good news is that these medications, most of them have been around a very long time. There's a lot of research. The kids, if you start on them, you start at a very low level and your kids are highly monitored. But I think that the important thing is really this idea of how are we going to teach the skills the kids need to become self-reliant adults. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what we want to think about. And that idea for parents to zoom out, to have a wider perspective. So not just on how horrible it is right now, or how tough it is, or how wonderful this moment is, which is all of those things sometimes combined, but where are we going? Like, what's the path that we want to be on? That's what parents, they're calling with like, I got to get my kids to be independent and autonomous. And right now they're totally dependent. What I always say is like tomorrow they will wake up one day older than today and it will be incremental and every parent's journey, yours is just going to be a little bit longer and a little bit more windier and, but we'll get them there because they become unbelievable adults. I really like that, Rachel, you know, tomorrow you're going to wake up and be one day older than today. I think that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's a saying in uh, Judaism, which is that every blade of grass has a little voice behind it that says grow, you know, and that's really what we're talking about. Like being able to be that voice that says grow. I don't think I created that line. I'm pretty sure I got it from like that Peter Pan musical. (laughs) I think he says in the Peter Pan musical that, you know, little boys tomorrow will wake up one day older than they are. I remember I was there with my best friend who has two sons and she was in there crying. (laughs) They were like three and one at the time. You mean Finding Neverland or Peter Pan? Yes. Thank you. That was the mute. And then I went back with my husband because I was like, you got to, the show was special in my mind. But anyway, so Sharon, we can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise, sharing this book with us. Again, the book is called What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew, Working Together to Empower Kids for Success in School and Life. And before we sign off, and we are going to continue our conversation on Patreon. I have a couple more questions for you, but how can our audience connect with you? Uh, thank you for asking that. And I would also just like to say to the audience, I really want you to know that you're on a journey and the journey can be bumpy sometimes. You can hit bad weather, but you'll hit beautiful viewpoints. You'll go into the valley and see the, the green growth. And that's what parenting is about. And so the more open you can be to the vicissitudes of the journey, the more that you can be there for your kids. So try to practice those five C's, self-control, compassion, collaboration, consistency, and celebration. 
you want to learn more about me and my work, please go to my website, www.drsharonceline.com. I'd love you to be my friend forever. You can friend me on my Facebook page or Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram. I post things every week. I post a newsletter as well as uh, daily posts about various things that I find interesting or things that I'm doing. So please connect with me. I would really appreciate that. Awesome. And of course, we've linked the book already and we'll link your website in the show notes. So we're going to continue the conversation over on Patreon. And Sharon, can you do our signature sign off for us, which is have a great week, Smarties? <laughs> I would love to do that. I'd also like to say that you should check out my ADHD solution card deck, which is an in the moment tool that also reflects the five C's. You can whip out a card when you need some inspiration. Perfect. And where can people find that? They can find that on Amazon. We'll link that as well. Thank you. And I would like to say to everyone, have a good week, Smarties. <laughs> have a great week. 